Good morning to everybody in the Ministry Center, and I want to give a special shout out to the folks who are worshiping this morning at New Community, our our new worship campus down in Garwood. This morning, they're having a kind of a practice run, getting ready uh, for next week when they launch on October 21st, but today they're kind of doing a practice run. Uh, getting all the bugs worked out so next week we can go public. So I want to welcome them and very excited. This is such a great step of faith for us. So good morning to everyone. Well, five weeks ago, we started a message series on how we grow as followers of Jesus, how we grow in God's grace by looking into Psalm 1. And it told us that a spiritual person is like a tree who puts its roots down deep into the Word of God and the living Word, Jesus. That's how spiritual growth starts. And those roots draw in the living water of the Holy Spirit, who's the one who connects us to God the Father and God the Son. And then we turn our minds toward God's truth, just like a a thriving plant turns toward sunlight. And then, just like a healthy plant develops seed, so we develop the we scatter the seeds of a changed life, of a of a godly behavior, godly habits, putting our faith into practical action. So roots and water. And light and seed, all part of this life cycle of a healthy spiritual life. But there's one more thing, one more element to this spiritual tree in Psalm 1 that we haven't talked about. Psalm 1 says this, that the spiritually healthy person who's grounded in the Word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water, and listen to this, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do, prospers. The tree bears fresh fruit. Fresh fruit. There's a beneficial result for the one who planted that tree. There's a harvest. A harvest. You know, this is kind of apple season, and lots of people have been out, you know, to the orchards picking a bushel of apples. And, you know, that's about as close as most of us ever get to understanding the importance of harvest. Uh, going out and picking some apples or blueberries or strawberries or, or maybe a couple tomatoes if you've got a vegetable garden that hasn't been picked clean by the deer or the rabbits. I think most of us would, would admit that we don't really know that much about harvesting. That's not really part of our lifestyle. Uh, we expect our fruits and vegetables to be clean and freshly packaged for us uh, right at the old farmer's market or in the grocery store. Unless you get your hands dirty in your own vegetable garden, we're pretty detached from this whole harvesting process. Harvesting is a multi-billion dollar industry now. It's a mixture of huge corporations and smaller family farms. The harvesting has done mostly been taken over by, you know, machinery, these huge combines and tractors, and yet in some cases, migrant farm workers picking vegetables and fruit by hand. One of the toughest jobs there is, and, and nobody I know wants that job because that kind of harvesting is hot, back-breaking, hard work for meager pay. So that's not the world most of us live in. So why is harvest a, a metaphor or something that we should think about? Well, what does harvest mean to us? Well, it's actually a pretty important topic that the Bible uses in talking about harvest to talk about the spiritual life, to illustrate our life with God in three pretty significant ways. First of all, Harvest as blessing, harvest as people, and harvest as judgment. We want to look at all three of these this morning because they're crucial if we want to grow to maturity in God's grace. 
Let's talk about harvest as a sign of God's blessing. We don't relate to the idea of harvest because we live in this urbanized industrial world. But for the people who lived 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day or 1,000 years before that in the day of the psalmist, or yesterday for people in the developing world, harvest is everything. Most farmers in the world are subsistence farmers, which means that if there's no harvest, there's no food. Without a good harvest, their families could starve. Their whole livelihood is wrapped up in that harvest. It's a lot like having a job where you only get one paycheck per year. That's the harvest. And that paycheck is affected by lots of things besides just your hard work. Rain, insects, heat, rodents, wind, soil, disease, on, on, and on. If things in, go in your favor and you get a good harvest, well, that's your, that's your paycheck. That's your money in the bank. That's what you live on until the next harvest. And it had better last because when it's gone, it's gone. So you'd better have enough to put away in barns or store up in silos. And you'll need some seed from your harvest to start next year's crop. We've seen that in our missions project in Malawi where corn is the key crop. Everything depends on increasing the productivity of their fields and the bounty of the harvest. Because without a good harvest, people do still starve to death in this world. So a good harvest is a cause for celebration. A good harvest was considered to be a sign of God's blessing, God's favor, evidence of his care and in his mercy. And so in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were commanded by God to celebrate the harvest. You can read about that in Exodus 23. There were festivals and sacrifices and holidays all wrapped around the time of harvest. And so the idea of a good harvest, it naturally became a metaphor about God's general blessings on a person's life. Like, like it says in Psalm 126, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. That's harvest language. God watching over and caring for his children. God blessing. That's like a great harvest. Now in our Western materialistic culture, We tend to think of being blessed by God means you get a lot of money, you have perfect health, and everybody loves you. To be blessed means you have a a problem-free, pain-free, worry-free life where everything goes perfectly and you always find that parking spot right by the entrance. That's God's blessing. We think of people being blessed with a talent, being blessed with good looks, being blessed with connections. But those are all really the surface things. And if that's your definition of God's blessing, then I think you're really headed for trouble. God's blessing is rarely tied to things that are visible to outsiders. I mean, that's the way Jesus talked about God's blessing. Remember that whole beatitude thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For Jesus, God's blessing goes to the deepest part of of your heart and your soul that no one else but God can see. God's blessing isn't about making a killing in the stock market or driving a more expensive car or getting into the perfect college. So what does it mean to be blessed? How do you know when your life is being blessed? Gordon MacDonald in his book, The Life God Blesses, writes about it this way. If blessing means, first of all, receiving the love of God, then I have a life that God blesses. 
If blessing means receiving the mercy and the restorative grace of God, then I have a life God has blessed. If I have a life that has occasionally experienced unusual empowerment, a moment in which there is a lifting above normal limits, a, a lifting of wisdom and strength, then I have a life God has blessed. If I'm in relationships with family or friends where there's a quality of human connection that is enduring and and satisfying, then I have a life God has blessed. And if there are moments when I experience an indescribable awareness of the closeness of God, when I have a sudden feeling of liberation to, to praise and to worship, then I have a life God has blessed. A blessed life is a life lived from the inside out. Lived from out of the soul. It comes from the quiet part of the soul where we connect with God. That inner space where God is most likely to visit us and to whisper His secrets, His his assurances. To heal spiritual and emotional wounds. To generate hope and courage. If you're looking to be blessed by God, then that's where you have to go to find it. And that's why one of the essential qualities of people who sense they are living a blessed life is the quality of gratitude. Gratitude. At the center of a healthy soul, at the core of a maturing Christian life, is a sense of gratitude for all of God's blessings. The very next breath is a gift. That life itself is a gift and must be appreciated. That the fact that God would even care enough to save us from our sins, that's a gift. And gratitude is one of the first things people lose if they're not walking with God. Gratitude gets replaced by by a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. I demand this. I earn this. I am owed this. Our suburban New Jersey culture is just overloaded with with privileged people who go through life with a sense of entitlement. Unfortunately, that doesn't work if you want to grow in God's grace. The Apostle Paul talks about the importance of having a grateful heart in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. He writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is like to be in need, and I know what it is like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any And every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, for Paul, his self-worth didn't depend on his net worth. It came from within, from his deep intimacy with the Lord. Are you thankful? Are you grateful for God's blessings over your life? If so, then you know the joy of the harvest. Well, second, the Bible talks about the harvest as people, people, people who come to faith in Christ, people who who give their lives to Christ. Jesus gave us this understanding of harvest himself. If you remember the story in John chapter 4 about his encounter with this uh, Samaritan woman at a well who was drawing water for the day. The disciples had gone into town to, to buy food at the local 7-Eleven or wherever it was that they went to buy food back then. And so Jesus is sitting by himself at the well at midday. And a woman comes with her water jug, and he engages her in this conversation about living water. We looked at that story when we talked about living water a couple of weeks ago. 
What's unusual is that Jesus would even talk to this woman because in that culture, men just didn't approach women who, who they were not related to. And especially not across this racial divide which separated uh, Jews from Samaritans. It was a strong uh, cultural divide. And plus, this was a woman with a reputation. She's had five husbands, Jesus points out, and she's living with a sixth man. I mean, even by today's Hollywood standards, that's a lot of of relational baggage that this woman is carrying. But in her brief encounter with Jesus, she experiences grace. She, she is stunned to feel, to feel love without manipulation, to feel acceptance without somebody working an angle. She experiences mercy. She experiences hope. All from Jesus. And so she is instantly transformed, so much so that she leaves her water jug and she runs back into town telling people, come meet this man who knows everything I've ever done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Well, that got a lot of attention because people wanted to hear those stories. They wanted to hear what she had done. And so the crowd follows her out of town back towards the well. And just then the disciples have, have returned. I got a bag of Cheetos or a Slurpee or something. And Jesus decides to use this as a teachable moment. He looks down across the field, across the hillside, and sees the people walking from the town across the fields right towards him. And he says, don't you have a saying that it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for the harvest. John 4.35. You see, like cotton fields, those fields in Palestine turned white when they were ready for the harvest. And here come all the people dressed in typically the traditional white frocks of the day. And Jesus says, look, that's the real harvest. This beautiful image, this beautiful picture of people walking through the fields towards Jesus. And Jesus says, open your eyes. Look, they are the harvest that God really cares about. And that's still true today. A spiritually maturing life should include the joy of introducing others to the Savior. The joy of the harvest is people, people connected to Christ. And if you want to call it witnessing or evangelism or faith sharing or offering spiritual direction, one of the ways we are to express our own spiritual health is through participating in God's harvest of people enabling people to come to a personal relationship with Christ. Sometimes I know the idea of sharing one's faith just terrifies people. I understand that. We live in this age of relativism where other folks just look down on you if you take your faith seriously. Anybody who actually claims to believe something specific, you know, people look at you strange. You immediately become a target for all those who say, well, a little religion is okay, but don't take it too seriously. And so we get intimidated into silence, and we never talk about our faith with anyone but those who are already within the community of faith. But really, this Samaritan woman is such a great example for us. She didn't know much about Jesus. She didn't have answers to all the questions and the great theological or ethical debates of her day. All she knew was that Jesus had changed her life, and she wanted to tell somebody about it. That's really the best kind of witness. You just share your story. What does Jesus mean to you? That's it. What difference has God made in your life? What's your before 
and after story. And I think it's important to understand the intellectual side of faith and to, and to really think deeply about what we believe, but it's not up to you to argue people into the kingdom or to twist somebody's arm until they give in. It's not your job to badger people or to be obnoxious or insensitive, but it is your job to tell your story because no one can argue with that. No one can argue with what you've experienced. That's the one thing people in a rel- relativistic culture have to respect. And so share your story. And then it's between them and God. It's no longer your responsibility. Like the saying goes, you know, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all you can do. And then it's between them and God. Your part is just to be open to the opportunities that God brings your way and to be willing to share your story. After all, someone did that for you or you wouldn't be here today. Someone was praying for you. Someone sowed good seed into your heart. Someone shared their Jesus story with you. And somehow that made sense. So go and do likewise, Jesus would say. And you get to participate in the most important harvest that there is, people coming to a personal faith in Christ. Harvest is blessing, harvest as people. And the third way harvest is used in the Bible is as judgment. And that's a hard one, judgment. Something we don't like to think about, God judging people. Eternal judgment, heaven and hell, that is not a popular topic outside or even inside the church. Heaven, I mean, everybody likes the idea of heaven. Everybody likes a happy ending, but hell... I mean, you want to shut down a conversation real quick, just start talking about hell. Hell doesn't fit into our anything-goes culture where God is seen as sort of a powerless, anemic, impotent God. No bark and and really no bite either. Where Jesus is just seen as this person of love who embraces everyone no matter what, even the ones who reject him. Everybody gets a free pass. (coughs) The problem is, is that when you take the Bible seriously, you can't avoid the reality of judgment. If you take Jesus seriously, you can't avoid the reality of judgment. It's written into the two main creeds that have defined the Christian faith, the Nicene Creed, where it says Christ will come come again in glory to do what? To judge the living and the dead. And in the Apostles' Creed, it says, Christ ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to what? To judge the living and the dead. People didn't just put those words in there. That comes from the words of Jesus himself. The harsh reality is that Jesus talked more about judgment, heaven and hell, than anybody else in the entire Bible. Separating sheep, from the goats, right hand, left hand, depart from me, I never knew you, all those kinds of things. Or this story from Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, 
you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them into bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Two quick things to learn from this parable. First, there's no perfection in this world. The weeds and the wheat are all mixed up together. And that's true in the church. The idea that you can create a perfect church or a perfect society, a utopia where we can begin to experience heaven on earth, folks, that is a fantasy. There's never going to be a perfect church. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it or that there aren't times when the church has maybe decayed so much that renewal may lead to splits or changes in denominations or or church structures. But the idea that you can ever create the perfect church, that's never going to happen. And secondly, it's not our job to judge who's in or who's out, which is wheat or which is weeds. A good farmer knows, but if you spend all your time trying to separate all that out, you'll end up doing more damage than good. So God wants us to focus on growing wheat the best we can and let him take care of the rest. Because there is a time when it will all get sorted out. There is a judgment coming, a reaping, a harvest, as it is talked about in Revelation chapter 14. And Jesus is the judge who brings the judgment. Jesus is the ultimate harvester, a God of love, yes, and a God of justice, righteousness, holiness, and perfection, a God who judges good and evil, a God who offers people grace and salvation, now through the sacrificial death of Christ, so that the harvest, they can be welcomed into God's presence for all eternity. The death of Jesus is is intimately connected with this judgment, this harvest. And it means everything to those who put their faith in Jesus. Because for believers, the harvest, the ultimate harvest, will be a time of joy and eternal celebration. Remember the three usages of harvest, God's blessing, people, and judgment. What we experience at death is all three of those combined into one experience. Eternal life is God's ultimate blessing on people who face judgment and who are then declared not guilty, not guilty because of the cross. That's what this morning's communion celebrates. His body broken, his blood shed so that we might have freedom from sin and life eternal and look forward to God's great harvest. The harvest I mean, I feel like I've barely moved the topsoil to dig into this topic. But I pray, as you think about God's blessing, God's people coming to a relationship with him, and judgment, I pray that your life will be fruitful for Christ. And whatever you do prospers because you're serving him. Let's pray together. Lord, harvest is a challenge. It's a hard topic. When we think of life's blessings and really being able to discern, what does it mean to say my life is blessed? When we think of people, people, your harvest, the harvest is plentiful, and Lord, you say send out laborers. Pray to send out laborers into the harvest. We need to be doing that too. And that starts with each one of us individually sharing our story. 
but also harvest as that ultimate judgment, Lord. Help us to know where to put that in our faith. Help us to know how to process that as we think about the importance of sharing our faith and the importance of what we do as a church family. Help us to have compassion and, and to, be, to be appropriately stirred up, Lord, to share our story so that people will know the joy of the harvest and not the sadness. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.